Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of the Red Seat Podcast. Today, I am joined by the editor-in-chief of BP Boston, Ben Carsley, for his second appearance on the show, and we're now uh, more than a month old. So, uh, Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Jake. Glad to make it uh, one way through the entire rotation. It's good news. Yeah, you know, we've made it through the rotation, uh, I think, almost as successfully as the Red Sox have their first month of the season. So um, that's a good thing. People are starting to realize we're there and uh, where to find us. So, uh, Ben, you want to shout out where they can find you at Twitter as well? Sure. You can find me at Ben Carsley and then uh, also at the BPro Boston Twitter handle. There you go. And uh, you can find me at, at DevJake. And uh, we are both fairly active tweeters. Ben probably a lot more than me, but a um, lot, lot of noise going on in the Red Sox Nation. We'll just hop right into it. Uh, right before we got on the show tonight, we both simultaneously emailed each other about the biggest happening, which uh, broke on Roto World at 7.38 and a little earlier than that on Twitter. Um, but it seems that Pablo Sandoval is going to steal some headlines tonight because he's actually going to undergo shoulder surgery. Uh, we don't know the scope of it and just what's damaged and what the timeline is, but we know at least that he's going to be out for the remainder of the year. And uh, Travis Shaw is the Red Sox full-time third baseman. So no more worries about him getting yanked in the sixth. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's it's tough. Obviously, there's the human element. You never want a player to be injured, uh, and this is this is tough for Pablo. It's also a little disappointing because I do think there was a path to Sandoval being useful later in the year. I, I don't think, you know, in the traditional sense of someone getting that much money, I think there's really nothing we can do or hope for that's going to make that a good contract for the Red Sox. But as we know, as we've seen with other players who've come in the past, you know, there's a difference between being entirely useless and nothing but but dead weight pardon the pun um and and you know being able to at least contribute a little bit and it seems like pablo is uh certainly not going to get a chance to do that at least in, until at least next year so in your mind um is this a blessing in disguise in terms of what the red sox situation was with pablo um you know i know it's unfortunate for him and you envision him being useful but really I mean, now is an excuse for him to get fully healthy and to have an off season in which he knows that there's no no other side of this coin. Like he's either coming into camp in shape or he's going to continue to not play baseball for the Boston Red Sox. It seems they've made that apparent that, um, you know, injury or not, he's not going to be the one that's playing if he's not in shape. So um, do you think that when he does come back from this thing that we get the Pablo that I think we all thought we were signing up for? Well, I don't know how much it has to do with conditioning and how much this was bothering him last year, if at all, if there are any ill effects and if this impacted his 2015 performance. Um, I get the blessing in disguise point in that it stops being a distraction whatsoever. To be fair, I think it already sort of had stopped being a distraction. Uh, Travis Shaw has really run with that job, and there's there's no doubt that, that Shaw is the man at third base. Uh, and to, to Pablo's credit, you know, he's been – a pretty good teammate, it seems like. Farrell's been quick to say that. Dombrowski's been quick to say that. And maybe that's just lip service. But, you know, it doesn't seem like he was sulking and being a big clubhouse cancer. It, it seems like he was just a guy who realized he lost his job and still wanted to be part of a willing, winning team and was willing to hang out and not necessarily be a detriment. So uh, certainly there are worse-case scenarios than him just getting 
you know, a full almost calendar year to really rehab this and come back and, like you said, focus on it. But uh, it's still a little disappointing, and, and I think it's going to be especially damaging if someone else gets hurt, if Travis Shaw gets hurt, or if, you know, really Hanley or Ortiz or one of these other guys gets hurt and you would have had this playing time open up, you know, you'd, you'd still rather have that go to Pablo than Josh Rutledge. Yeah, that's, that is a, a huge drop off thinking about that. And we've already seen Josh Rutledge in the lineup a few times this year, much to my dismay, but you know, that's, that's the John Farrell decision making skills. But, yeah. um, you know, th- those, those can be questioned at times. Um, but as far as his trade value goes, I mean, how does this, how does this affect the way that other teams are going to view Pablo, uh, either now or in the off season? I think it's, Probably pretty encouraging if you're other clubs that were scouting him that he is hurt. There was something wrong with him, and that's why he wasn't performing. Uh, and maybe this can detract a little bit from the, some of those conditioning concerns. Like you said, I mean, maybe the shoulder was a much bigger deal than the weight. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms, obviously, in near term, I think his odds of being traded drop from like 8% to zero. Uh, the only way he's going to get traded is if he comes back next year healthy you know, has a great spring training and also gets some playing time and looks good in the regular season, then maybe you can find a potential trade partner for him. Uh, I think at this point he's more likely to either be a bench player or DFA'd than be traded, but I do follow your line of thinking here in that, you know, at least teams have something that can sort of explain away his his rough performance, uh, you know, especially defensively last year. Uh, this seems like something that, that could have hindered him that way. Yeah, that was the most shocking thing to me, I think, last season. And obviously none of us had any inkling that he was not 100%, but this is a player that, despite his heft, has been able to post above-average defensive seasons uh, multiple times in his career. And it was actually something that I was looking forward to when the Red Sox did sign him, is getting a a better defender over there at third base. So uh, certainly not something we saw. And Travis Shaw hasn't been you know, outright impressive at third base defensively, but he makes all of the, the, uh, easy plays. And I remember in the off season, um, when we were talking about some trade possibilities together and I, I wrote a piece and about some of the, uh, off season trades I thought the Sox might make, uh, we briefly discussed, uh, Travis Shaw at third base offline. And, uh, I think we were both pretty concerned about what that might bring. So, um, I think we all have to be pretty happy about what we've gotten from him so far, right? Uh, I mean, Brian Butterfield is a witch. Between what he has done for Travis Shaw, what he's done for Hanley at first, the strides Xander Bogarts has made, um, you know, Butter's been with Pedroia for a long time, and that man is uh, is pretty damn good at what he does. And it is easy to forget that Shaw, you know, was, I believe, originally drafted as a third baseman, and he played a lot there in high school. Uh, but I mean, he barely played any third base in the upper minors to the, uh, to the point where I think most people didn't know he had it in him. I didn't really. I knew he could do it in a pinch, but uh, it's astounding to me that you could probably competently put a 50 grade on his glove, right? That seems about right. Perfectly yeah. average, capable major league glove at third base. Uh, that certainly would not have been my guess last year. Yeah, I would say that the range is maybe a little bit lacking, but I think he makes up for it with strong and accurate throws from over there so it's been pretty impressive and uh certainly i agree the the native new englander brian butterfield certainly is uh quite the asset to have on the team so um that's been a really good thing and i think now it's time to move on to the next subject which is carson smith 
making his way back to the Red Sox. Um, just to put this contextually, I mean, the Red Sox are now in first place, five games over 500 at 15 and 10. Now we're getting Carson Smith back, and the Red Sox are supposedly going to get Eduardo Rodriguez back here in, in a, a short while too. So, I mean, what's what's the Carson Smith impact first? But how does how do these two additions to what's already a pretty good Red Sox club uh, affect the team going forward? Yeah, I think you know we we've seen a lot of people say this, and maybe maybe we've heard about how underrated Carson Smith is so many times that it's no longer true. Uh, but it's going to be a very very meaningful addition to this staff. It just slides everybody behind Kimbrell back a little bit, you know, maybe with the exception of Koji. I think Smith and Koji will end up trading off uh, that sort of, you know, eighth inning role. Uh, but it lets you not burn out Tozawa. Uh, it lets you keep, you know, promising youngsters like Matt Barnes and Heath Embry to sort of the sixth inning role or to lower leverage middle inning work. Um, and it means that hopefully you're really only using Tommy Lane and Robbie Ross uh, for lefties when you really need to. So I think it is a pretty big deal. Uh, and I'm just excited to watch him pitch. You know, he's a guy up there in Seattle in the AL West. I probably only got to see him pitch like five or six times last year. Uh, and I'm excited to get to watch him throw hopefully 40, 50 times this year. He's, uh, he's really unique and he's just extending what's already proven to be, uh, an imperfect but pretty potent bullpen. Yeah, I'm excited about it, too, and I think for all the same reasons that you mentioned. But one of the things that I found interesting was when they made the move to add him to the team, the guy who they decided to option was Marco Hernandez, uh, leaving Hannigan, Rutledge, and Chris Young on the bench for the Red Sox. So they're going with a pretty short bench right now um, and with eight relievers. Um, how yeah. long do you think they go with that setup, or do you think that that's temporary? I originally thought that maybe they would get rid of one of the two lefties. Uh, I thought Tommy Lane might be the guy to go, but seems like they may be keeping this setup. Yeah, I think it won't be for terribly long, especially if any of the other guys gets even a little nicked up or something. Um, I don't know off the top of my head what Robbie Ross's option situation is. I know Tommy Lane is out of options, uh, but Barnes and Hembry are not, and you could easily stash one of them uh, until you know you know that you know you're going to need another reliever at some point in the season. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to go down, uh, and being able to call up Barnes or Hembry instead of like Noe Ramirez uh, is is a substantial upgrade. So wouldn't surprise me if they roll with eight for. A few days or maybe even a week but eventually i think they will go back to the standard four-man bench although you know this is a byproduct of having players like brock holt and travis shaw who are insanely versatile is they can be a little more leisurely with their bench options than other teams would be yeah that's certainly been a plus this season and he's been treated as a utility guy even though he has a starting role with the team which been which has been sort of interesting in its own right um getting back to the bullpen situation though uh the only player that is out of options that's currently in the bullpen is tommy lane which okay. opens up sort of an interesting um conundrum that you could have later on or maybe not a conundrum that's probably the wrong word for it, but maybe even a luxury, um, you're able to option these quality righties down and bring them back up when you need to. But do you think it's possible that the Red Sox could shop a guy like Tommy Lane uh, later in the season, especially if some of the youngsters, some of the younger lefties 
uh, like Renéus Elias or uh, Williams Jerez down in Double A, some guys like that, if they're starting to have good seasons and they need another lefty, um, do you think this guy could be trade bait at all? Yeah, I mean, I think he needs to be a little more productive before you get anything meaningful for him. I do think he's been somewhat of an underrated contributor over the past two seasons. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see one of Lane or Ross go. It also wouldn't surprise me to see the Red Sox try to upgrade externally when it mm-hmm. comes to a left-handed relief option. Uh, you know, I think as we get into June or July, if they're still in contention, you know, they don't need another relief ace, but they could they could go out on the market and try to get a really good left-handed pitcher to sort of complement this this quartet of, of really potent righties. Yeah, I think that that's certainly in play, and um, potent righties is is just certainly the most correct word for that because uh, Matt Barnes has been very impressive, and I think the biggest surprise has been Heath Hembry. Really, I'm I read about him a lot when he was in the Giants system and. They were dreaming on his potential, and now at 27 years old, he seems to be finally cashing in on a little of that. So uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on him quickly and just where you see him fitting in in the future with the Red Sox. Yeah, you know, it's been really impressive, and you're right. When he was a giant, he was really billed for several years as their closer of the future, uh, and we all know how that works out in Boston with, uh, with Craig Hansen and Daniel Bard and whatnot. Uh, but his stuff just seems to have taken a significant step forward this year. I mean, he was dominant in AAA last year. Obviously, he struggled with the Red Sox, but this is a player with a history of performing very well in the upper minors, and now that his command seems to have taken a step forward, probably even more so than his stuff, I would say it's his command is what's making the biggest difference, uh, and, and we're seeing that bear fruit right now, and you know, I don't think he's actually a 2.9% walk rate guy. I think... Uh, we will see that as the season arises, but if he is your seventh or eighth or ninth reliever, uh, it means that you've built a very, very good bullpen. And, you know, it's funny to see, obviously, Hembry was a Ben Charrington acquisition, but it's sort of funny to see how Dombrowski has retained all this depth and added to it after bullpens were his Achilles heels for so many really good Tigers teams. Uh, it's kind of like he just said, you know, screw this. This is not going to be what, what gets me this time around. Yeah, it certainly seems like he's doing everything he possibly can to make sure that doesn't happen. And going back to Hembry, uh, really a pretty solid acquisition for the Red Sox there in that Jake Peavy trade. Uh, Hembry along with Edwin Escobar for Jake Peavy. So um, I think we're all pretty happy about that. Even with Edwin Escobar DFA, you're getting a quality reliever who has a chance to be pretty dominant. So. Yeah, I mean, the uh, when the Red Sox fall out of contention, their plan seems to be to just ship off veterans to San, San Francisco and get interesting pieces back, which, you know, last year they went back to that well. And for Alejandro Diaz, they got Luis Isla, who's, you know, by no means an elite prospect, but is right around a top 20 guy in the system. Uh, so it's it's not a bad plan if you can get a live arm for someone who's not going to help you moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one more thing on the bullpen before we move on to some of uh, our surprises for this early going, but... How excited are you on a scale of 1 to 10 not to have to see Noe Ramirez or Pat Light pitch anytime soon? Yeah, especially Noe. Uh, <laughs> it's a great story, and I hope he goes to an NL West team with a big park where you know I hope he's the sixth-inning man on the Padres for 10 years and enjoys a long career. Uh, but someone with that sort of home run to fly ball rate tendency is not going to do well in the AL East. Uh, so I wish I wish Noe all the best, but if Noe has to throw ten more innings for the Red Sox this year, I'll be I'll be a little bit bummed. 
Yeah, it's it certainly wasn't pretty when he was in there. So uh, that's it's going to be a, a great luxury not to see that again. Um, so I wanted to get to some April surprises because there just have been so many in this early going. I think if any Sox fan told you before the season that he really knew how this whole thing was going to shake out, um, they'd be lying because although a lot of pundits uh, you know, picked the Red Sox to finish first in their division, I think how they were going to do it was pretty uncertain. Uh, it's just that they had the pieces and people thought that they could make it work. Um, but so far there have been a lot of surprises, and I wanted to lead off with my personal biggest surprise, which is through 22 games this uh, season so far, Hanley Ramirez, who I predicted to have seven errors on the entire season, has committed zero errors so far at first base. Yeah, it's pretty staggering. Uh, I was I was cautiously optimistic that Ramirez would be a serviceable first baseman, but I didn't really let myself dare to dream that he would be a slightly above average first baseman. And uh, he's at least average, and I think he shows the signs of ticking up to something a little more. Uh, but he just looks happier and more engaged, too. He seems really with it. He seems really intensive. Uh, a little more of that fun-loving, free-spirit Hanley that I think we were all hoping for last year when the Red Sox acquired him. So it's been great so far. Uh, I I can't really explain it other than it does as little sense as it makes that he flopped that badly in left field. It does make sense that he would excel back in the infield, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you made such a salient point about his attitude there. He almost looks like a little eager playing out there at first base. I mean, it seems every pitch that someone's on base, he's got his gloves set up, he's waiting for the throw over, even if it's like not even remotely in the cards to happen. He's ready for it, and he's calling people off for pop-ups and um, just a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't expect to see. Um, and it's really taking my mind, at least, off of the lack of production that he's had with the bat so far. The the power hasn't shown up, but the nice thing about what he's done with the bat is that um, he's been able to spray the ball a little bit more, and I think his swing has looked a lot more like classic Hanley Ramirez um, than it did last year when he was selling out for more power. So. I remain pretty confident that he's going to be able to uh, post a pretty good season with the bat as well. Yeah, I'm not terribly worried about his bat yet. Uh, he's just, he's so recently removed from being a dominant offensive force. I mean, it was only 2014 where he was really, really good with the bat. Uh, and even last year, you know, I mean, the, before he was injured, he was off to a torrid pace. So... I think it'll come around, you know, even if he's not the superstar bat the Red Sox acquired, I think he can hit enough to combine with his defense to be a league average asset at first base. Uh, and for me, where this gets the most interesting is, you know, you don't have to just pigeonhole him at DH next year. Obviously, you can plan around him seeing some time at DH, and that's great, but it gives the Red Sox a lot more flexibility in their roster construction for, you know, 2017 and the year or two after that if Henley doesn't have to be a DH full-time. Yeah, it certainly does, and I wonder how that affects acquisitions that they might be possibly looking at uh, next year. I mean, guys like Edwin Encarnacion uh, on the market next year, and Edwin has expressed uh, his 
um, interest in playing first base a little bit more, even though that's not always the best thing for the team he's playing it for. Um, but I wouldn't be totally shocked at a scenario where they do acquire a guy like Edwin and give him some games at first base, uh, most of the games at DH, and keep Hanley there most of the time. Yeah, there are all sorts of uh, intriguing players and bigger bats that they can go after to try to uh, try to replace a little bit of David Ortiz, who's, who's irreplaceable, but the job's a lot easier if you can slot someone else in at DH. Yeah, thinking about Ortiz retiring is just mind-blowing at this point, being that he's having one of his best statistical years so far uh, right now in this early going. I went to uh, my second game of the season uh, just about a week ago, uh, where he hit three doubles in the game. And I was just like, man, th- this guy just still has it. He still just scares the crap out of pitchers. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and every, you know, uh, there's a big part of me that every time he does something, I just think, oh, please don't retire. And then part of me is like, it's pretty awesome that, you know, we don't have to watch you limp to the finish line like Derek Jeter or, or another player like that. You're, you're going to go out close to the top of your game. So you know, I'll be happy either way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Barry Sanders-esque, but... You know, with 12 more years or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's Barry Sanders with the peak and the longevity. So. Yeah. It's pretty good. We've, we've been very lucky. But um, next surprise of April that I wanted to turn to was um, the disappointing start from David Price. Uh, currently has an ERA of 614 uh, right now in the early going. Um, the more advanced statistics are a lot more forgiving. And the strikeout to walk rate uh, has been pretty favorable for him. In this early going, um, we know he has a history of slow starts, but not quite this slow. And I think the thing that people are pointing to um, when they're getting concerned about David Price is the drop in velocity. So I wanted to get your thoughts on David Price in the early going and whether or not you're concerned at all for his longer term outlook. No, I'm not concerned for his longer term outlook yet. I am a little concerned about the drop in velocity just because I believe the last time Price was this ineffective was shortly before his only DL stint of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was basically for either a tired back or a tired arm or something like that. So I'm a little worried we might be looking at that type of a situation where he needs to hit the shelf for a month or something and recover. But I can't make myself be worried about a guy with his track record having five mediocre starts. Um, it's a little jarring to see when it's actually happening, just because it's not what you associate with David Price. Uh, but I'm not terribly worried yet. You know, he's frankly always kind of sucked against the Yankees. They've always had his number. So that wasn't terribly surprising to see. And he's faced a lot of really good lineups so far this year, uh, as well as the, you know, Braves, which wasn't the most impressive outing in the world. Uh, but I'm not super, super worried. And like you said, the advanced metrics, small sample size all you want, but they do paint a much more favorable pitcher. So. If he's still doing this in July, uh, maybe I'll be breaking out in sweats. But right now, I think we're okay. How much more would we have been panicking right now if in that brave start where he struck out 14, um, if some of those runners were actually able to uh, score? Because he did load the bases twice against the Braves in that game, which was a little alarming considering their lineup is Freddie Freeman and nobody. Um, So, I mean, did that raise any red flags for you? Well, I mean, a little bit, but if you look at his season, his left on base percentage is still only 57%, which is way, <laughs> way below yeah. average. So that could just be, uh, you know, cluster luck in a good way. Um, it wasn't as inspiring a performance as 14 strikeouts makes it sound. I think you're certainly hitting the nail on the head when you say that. 
But at the end of the day, it still is a major league lineup that he was able to, for the most part, dominate. Um, so it was at least a small step in the right direction, even if his Yankee start was perhaps a step back. So just an aside here, the third baseman for Atlanta, Castro, who is this guy? I was like watching the games and I was just trying to think to myself, like, is, has, have I seen this guy before? Do you know anything about Castro? Not a lot. I mean, he was never really a top prospect. I know that he made his debut last year and had a brief cup of coffee. There's really not a lot in his upper minors line to suggest he's headed toward anything great, although he actually has posted somewhat of a decent average. But uh, he is a relative unknown to me, but that's that's one of the few advantages of having a total rebuild like the Braves are is you can uh, – you can give guys like that a chance, and, and you know sometimes they turn out to be Will Middlebrooks, unfortunately, but sometimes they turn out to be Odubel Herrera, and uh, they just need plate appearances before you know what you have. Yeah, I just thought it was really funny because you know I'm a guy who pays attention in the minor leagues. I did top 100 prospects lists of my own in 2014 and 2015, and here is a guy that I was watching on the field that I had never heard of. So I, I just can, thought that uh, was funny can confidently say I had never heard of him until last year and can confidently say I had not thought about him again until I saw him <laughs> play the Red Sox. Yeah, it's it's funny that they're they're trotting guys out like that, but you know, um it is what it is and when their new stadium's built in Cobb County, we'll uh I'm sure we'll see a better team. So, um on on a good note this year, we've seen Rick Porcello just turn into something that frankly I don't think anybody um thought was possible um rick porcello was so bad for the red sox last year and i know he was good towards the end of the season um but he's not only um been better and been back to his old self that he was in detroit but he's been the best version of rick porcello that we've ever seen um we talked about that at length on the show last week with brian joiner um but really, I mean, shutting down the Yankees again, he's got a 276 ERA, 5-0 record right now. It's just amazing. This is this has got to be one of the bigger surprises. I mean, where does this rank for you in terms of surprises this April? Uh, for me, it's only behind Christian Vasquez taking Dallin Batances, which actually, I guess, <laughs> technically happened in May. Uh, so I would, count, I would say Porcello is the biggest surprise of the season so far to me. And what I find particularly interesting is that he's doing this while he's still giving up home runs. Uh, it's not like he's surviving by, you know, suddenly running into some luck with not giving up homers or altering his approach. He's still giving up plenty of bombs, but he's dominating everyone who doesn't hit a homer. Uh, and that is an approach that can work if you're actually that good to everyone you're not giving up homers to. It's a little... It, this is, makes no sense in terms of their repertoire or their stuff, so don't kill me. But I just mean the Josh Beckett type of okay, I'm going to give up bombs, but when I'm not, you're dead. Uh, it's possible for this profile to work, even in Fenway Park. So don't want to get ahead of ourselves, just like I didn't think he was as bad as he showed last year. I don't think he's as good as we're seeing right now. But uh, it's certainly been super promising and, and really, really important to the Red Sox at a time when David Price and Clay Buckles have struggled. So if I was to ask you if from here on out, uh, Rick Porcello and Hanley Ramirez uh, live out to the, the the actually like being a good contract for the Red Sox if they actually fulfill that destiny that we thought was possible when they were signed. I mean, what what would you put the percentage at for that? 
Do you think that that's possible for both of these guys now? Uh, uh, I'm still a little more optimistic with Hanley just because he is capable of such offensive explosion. Uh, so I think Hanley has the best odds of really justifying his contract. I think Porcello has a decent, decent shot of making his contract not look awful, especially considering what we've seen other sort of mid-rotation starters go for this offseason and what I think we're going to see uh, this upcoming season, uh, next offseason. So there's definitely a chance, and I uh, still don't know if I fully buy into this version of Rick Porcello, but he doesn't need to be this version of Rick Porcello to justify a $20 million a year contract anymore because that's what mid-rotation guys get. So a couple other guys that got contracts really similar, Mike Leake in the right. offseason and uh, Wei Yin Chen uh, in Miami. How much, if at all, do you think Rick Porcello outperforms those two guys over the length of this contract? Uh, I mean, I'd probably put him in the middle. I'd probably have, I'd probably pick Chen and then Porcello and then Leake. Okay. Uh, so I, I think that's a very fitting group for him to be associated with. So, I mean, just amazing that uh, here we are on May 2nd as we record this, talking about the Rick Porcello and Hanley Ramirez deals possibly not being nightmares. And all it will take is a few bad weeks for us to go completely the other way. Yep, that's that's all it took for uh, the Red Sox to give Blake Swihart the hook, which is my next uh, biggest surprise in April, that Blake Swihart finds himself in AAA. And I won't beat this horse into the ground anymore because... Uh, anybody that follows me or has ever listened to anything I've said probably knows that I've beat this as much as I possibly could. But I have to say, that does shock me that I wouldn't have predicted that uh, before the season. Yeah, I'll, I'll beat this dead horse a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I've only really, the only time I really got to speak or write about this was when I did the transaction analysis for BP. Um, I think there's a misconception that at least on my part, that I'm like anti-Christian Vasquez because of how hard I came out against the Red Sox for, for sending Blake down. And that couldn't be further than the truth. I think Vasquez is great. I've been on him since double A. I really believe in his skill set, and I think he is already one of the three best defensive catchers in baseball. So it's not about Vasquez. It's just that I don't think Vasquez is so good that you can justify messing with Swihart's future. So I didn't really mind the demotion so much as I minded the news that he is starting to semi-shift to the outfield. And I don't want to go full hot take, you know, let's blow up, because he is still catching a majority of the time and just taking balls in the outfield. But this is a potential franchise catcher, and if you think he needs time focusing on his defense in the minors, just let him focus on his defense behind the plate in the minors. And then once he proves to you that he can excel there, then you can sort of shift him to the outfield, or you can decide, well, he's not going to figure it out. We need to move him full-time to the outfield. So I think there are plenty of paths, uh, especially in 2017, where both Vasquez and Swihart are on this team. I don't buy the line of reasoning that it's a misallocation of resources to have both or whatever. Um, I think the Red Sox could be in a very enviable position behind the behind the plate if they do have both, but I don't love the way he's been handled so far. Well, there you have it, people. Um Ben just said what I've been trying to say um, for the last two weeks, but way more eloquently than I was ever able to say it. So um, you you nailed everything right there. That's exactly how I feel about the situation. Um, yeah, that, need I say no more. Are so. you uh, prepared for late June when the Red Sox trade Ryan Hannigan and Christian Vasquez immediately like breaks his hand or something? Because you know it's going to happen within like the two weeks they trade Hannigan. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
it's it it's certainly going to happen. I I'm prepared. You know, I'm 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 waiting <laughs> for it. I'm just saving my anger for you know the upcoming events, but it'll yeah. be interesting nonetheless. I was I was wondering about one more thing about this Blake Swihart thing. So I was on record as saying I would rather have the Red Sox commit to Vasquez for their future and decide that they want to be strong up the middle um, and trade Blake Swihart for um, a bona fide ace than do what they're doing with him. I wonder if you're on board with that same thing. Um, not yet because I think the Red Sox have a very unique chance to build a sort of catching platoon around Vasquez and Swihart that keeps both players fresh and gives them one of the strongest one-two punches behind the plate in all of baseball. And I do think a part of that will incorporate Swihart maybe pacing a little time in left field, maybe some at DH next year. We just talked about if Hanley doesn't need to go there. Um, so I think there's a real path to value for both. I just think that so much of his value is tied up in his ability to stay behind the plate that making him take any focus away from that primary objective right now is a mistake. Uh, so I'm not at the point where I need to see him be used as a trade chip yet. Although, uh, yeah, I mean, if the A's come calling and dangling Sonny Gray for a package of Swihart and one of the big four prospects, uh, if you do get a pitcher like that on the line, I understand the notion. But I, I just, uh, I think people are overrating Vasquez a little bit and really, really underrating what Swihart can still bring to the table. You know, I have trouble envisioning a scenario where three guys in the aggregate, a left fielder, uh, and some sort of a behind-the-plate rotation of Blake Swihart and Vasquez um, outproduces a Blake Swihart playing every day behind the plate and a left fielder uh, out there. I don't. I, I think that that situation certainly gives the Red Sox uh, the better offense going forward. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, there's no question that Swihart over Vasquez is a, is a drastic offensive improvement. But I do I do buy into the fact that Vasquez is an excellent framer, and I could certainly see a scenario in the future where you want him working with your head case pitchers or your really young pitchers, um, and and maybe he starts 90 games a year behind the plate, and Swihart starts 70, and then starts another 40 somewhere else or something like that. Uh, it's atypical, and that makes people uncomfortable. But I think they're very well suited to give it a try. So how do you decide, though, then, who gets to have Vasquez as the catcher? Because I think every starter for the Red Sox would rather throw the ball to Vasquez than Swihart at this point, and I think they would all benefit from it from a numbers standpoint. So how would well, you even break that up? I mean, they all benefit from it until Swihart hits a three-run homer, and then they have run support. Right. So I think there needs to be a le- – I, I, I don't know because I don't know their personalities, but, you know, these guys – what 80% of the time the backup catcher on a team is the better defensive asset. And that's not who starts. Uh, so I think that's something that everyone who plays professionally is used to. And, you know, unless you have someone frankly like Clay Buckholz, who I could see just crumbling if he doesn't have a security blanket. Uh, I don't think you'd have to worry about that too often. Yeah. And if you're interested in comparing these two from a pitch framing perspective, uh, the best article that I've seen out there written on it was on our site, BP Boston, uh, written by, I believe it was Dustin Palmatier, right? Yeah, that was a phenomenal piece, and he had GIFs and a side-by-side breakdown. Yeah. And even the subtle movements, which, which 
to me, illustrated that Swihart isn't even terrible. It's just that Vasquez is so otherworldly. Yeah, that was a tremendous piece. So I would urge everybody out there who's interested in pitch framing to check that out. So, um, so let's move on off of surprises, unless you've got any others you want to add. Uh, no, I think I think that covers it for right now, especially since we sort of already spoke about Hembry and Barnes. Perfect. Um, so I wanted to move on to talking about some team stats with the Red Sox here. Uh, month into the season, you know, we've got 25 games uh, under the team, so we've, we've got a good idea of what this team is at this point. Not a great idea, but still a pretty good one. Um, one thing we know is that the Red Sox offense is good. Right now they sit first in the American League in runs scored and third in all of baseball with 134 runs. Currently, I'll give you a few other metrics about their offense. They rank first in the AL uh, in uh, batting average and second in all of baseball at 285. Um, surprisingly, although the Red Sox have only hit 21 home runs this year, which is 21st best in baseball, um, they're fifth in slugging percentage at 452. So really what we're looking at with the Red Sox is a team that's very, very good offensively, who I expect to get better in the home run department. But even if they don't, this is going to be okay, right? Yeah, and uh, today, well, yes, yesterday when you're listening to the podcast, uh, Nick Canales wrote about this up on the site and basically just broke down how many doubles and triples this Red Sox team is hitting. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think that they will hit for more homers and at least finish middle of the pack in that department. I think Hanley will hit for more power. I think Travis Shaw can hit for more power. I still think Xander can hit for a little more power. So it wouldn't be shocking to see that rise to the middle of the pack. Uh, but Nick uh, sort of compared it to the Royals offense of last season, in which they were, I think, third or fourth in baseball and runs scored, but right around the middle to slightly below average mark in homers. Um, so just sort of proving that when you have this type of contact skill and this type of doubles power and you have the ability to take the extra base, uh, homers aren't the end-all be-all, which is sort of a new way of thinking about the Red Sox, who for so many years were top three or at least top five in homers. Yeah, when you think about the Red Sox historically, you think about taking a lot of pitches and hitting a lot of home runs, and that's, you know, we're still seeing the team take a lot of pitches, but um, they are a little more aggressive than teams in the past, and it's nice to see the doubles come as much as they have so far. 67 doubles, good for first in the entire uh, MLB right now um and i think some of those will inevitably turn into home runs as the weather turns a little bit warmer um just to dig into it a little bit more um at baseball perspectives we have a stat called true average red Sox are 10th best in baseball and true average at 273 um fangraphs has another stat weighted runs created plus which is very similar just slightly different ways that they weight it uh, and the Red Sox rank a little bit more favorably second in all of baseball in that stat, just behind the Pirates. So uh, any way you cut it, the offensive picture looks really good for this team going forward. Uh, and we'll only see some improvements, I think, as as uh, the weather heats up. Um, in terms of the defense, though, I think this is what's been um, one of the nicer things to watch as a baseball fan. Um, currently, the Red Sox rank is the 13th best team in the uh, league defensively um and we're seeing the fruits of that uh outfield that we dreamed on in the offseason actually produce yeah and, and i think uh one of the best things for the franchise that we've seen so far this season is jackie bradley hitting a little bit 
uh, because it means he's going to get to stay in center field and just be a monster there for a while. So uh, basically all those minimum qualifiers we threw out there for Bradley and what he needed to produce at the plate, he's meeting or exceeding. Uh, you know, we've seen him hit for a little power. We've seen him come up big in, in key spots. You know, he's still striking out plenty, but he's finding ways to get on base here and there. And that's really all you need from him. And you can just let him save you 10 billion runs a year in the outfield. Uh, and I think that is going to go a very long way for this team. Did you um, see the uh, game yesterday when um, Holt called off uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. on a ball to, to end the inning? I think it was later in the game, like eighth or ninth inning. Um, and it was certainly Holt's ball. Um, it was right and left field, but the ease at which Jackie Bradley was able to get to the exact same spot as Brock Holt covering more ground was it, just unbelievable. Just little things like that that you notice when watching Jackie Bradley Jr. just makes watching this team so much more enjoyable. I could not be happier that he's hitting that 250 that we expected from him. He's hitting some doubles, some triples, some home runs every once in a while. Uh, just so exciting. I just wanted to reiterate that point. There, there was some ridiculous catch, and I forget who exactly it was against. Maybe it was against the Braves or perhaps the series before that, uh, where he had he covered like almost a hundred feet on a diving catch or something like that, and Statcast gave him a root efficiency of like ninety six percent or something absurd. <laughs> uh, he's just such a joy to watch out there, and, and I sincerely hope he's someone I'm able to watch out there for the next decade. Yeah, he's a learning computer. Cyberdyne Systems Model 101. He's able to take the exact route necessary. <laughs> it's, it's pretty scary. It is. It's impressive. He's the new wave. Um, so let's talk about where the team stands in terms of pitching. The The picture um, is not as bleak as you'd think on the, on the surface so far. I mean, we've talked about it at length the first month of this show. There have been warts for the starting pitching staff, uh, no doubt, and we have seen Enough Noe Ramirez to last us for the remainder of the season. Um, <laughs> currently, the team ranks 20th best uh, in the league in ERA. Certainly nothing to brag about there. But when you start digging a little bit deeper into XFIP, uh, the team ranks 10th. And um, there's also a few of our own stats at BP Boston. Um, do you have those in front of you? Yes, I do. For uh, for CFIP, they're an even 100, which means totally average. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a scale where the lower you are, the better. So for, for some context, the best team in the leagues is the Cubs at 88. The worst team is the Rockies, shocking at 110. Red Sox are, are 14 at 100. Uh, and then there is also DRA, which has the Red Sox with a 4.24, and that's graded the same way, on the same scale as ERA. So not uh, crazy great but actually good for 12th in the majors yeah so they're they're right around that point a little bit better than average and in another um stat by fan graphs as well that compares to dra um sierra um skills interactive era they're actually ninth best in the league so i think with the improvements that we should see coming forward with um david price acclimating and Hopefully Rick Porcello continuing to pitch well and us to be able to get something out of Clay Buckholtz. Um, you should be looking at a top 10 team in pitching for the remainder of the year, especially as the bullpen gets stronger. Is that something you'd agree with, Ben? Um, I think top 10 is a little optimistic, but not unreasonably so. Uh, I do think that you 
we have some key performers who are going to be better. I think David Price is better than this. As inconsistent as Clay Buckles is, he's better than this. I think Kimbrel and Koji are better than they've shown. I don't think Porcello is quite this good. I don't think Stephen Wright is quite this good. There's a guy we didn't talk about as a surprise. Uh, but we've written about him plenty on the site, so I don't, yep. I don't feel so bad. He's certainly gotten his due from us. <laughs> um, so I, top 10, I think would be for me slightly better than I expect right now, mm-hmm. but I don't see them being worse than average. I don't see them dropping a lot farther than the 15 mark, you know, unless price gets hurt or something like we talked about earlier. How does the addition of Eduardo Rodriguez play into the inevitable uh, regression that we're going to see from Porcello and Wright in their games as as the year goes on. Does that factor in as even, evening that out, or does it not quite do that for you? No, I think it's another mark in their favor. I I'm fairly high on Rodriguez. I don't think he will. I don't think he'll reach these heights this year, but I think he's a long term potential number two, probably number three starter. If you asked me before the season who had the second most upside on the Red Sox staff, I. I probably would have said Erod. Um, so I think getting him back will be a huge boon. At, at at least he's better than than Henry Owens, who I still think can be a, a back end piece. But you know, Erod is better than Henry Owens right now. So I do think that his addition can make up for some of the re- regression we see coming in in Porcello and Wright. Um, and you know the the good thing about Wright pitching so well is is that if Erod comes back and is good, I think we can finally have seen the last of Joe Kelly in the rotation. Uh, So hopefully that will be the the final dagger in that experiment. Yeah, that would be best for everybody's sanity. Um, In terms of Eduardo Rodriguez, I'm admittedly a little bit nervous about how he's going to perform when he comes back. Um, Just because for pitchers, it's so tremendously important to have your legs underneath you in terms of uh, not only getting your velocity, but getting your control dialed in, I think is the most important thing for a guy like Eduardo who really needs to execute, even though he does have, you know, the great slider and the 95 mile an hour lefty fastball. Uh, you don't have anything unless you have your release point consistent. So um, that's something that I'll be a little bit concerned about in the early going. Mm-hmm. I think that we might see best case Eduardo, um, towards the end of the year where hopefully the Red Sox are looking towards the playoffs. Um, but we may see a pitcher that's substandard to what we think he could be initially. Yeah. I mean, he's always, we saw this last year. He's a pretty volatile guy, right? He's capable of going out there and totally, totally sinking up the joint and just making it so you don't even have a chance in a game. And he's also capable of spinning off eight innings and allowing one earned run at a moment's notice. So, Certainly wouldn't surprise me if a few of his early starts especially are, are more of the stinker variety. Um, but I think that's why I'm all for letting him come along low and slow. You know, they're they're in a good spot right now. To me, Owens is at least serviceable. There's no reason to rush Rodriguez. You can let him build up his innings count and build up his pitch count and in AAA. And even if he's not coming back until like early June or something like that, uh, that's something I think I'm fine with. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Taking it slow with him is the smart uh, way to go for a guy who's going to be such a big piece of the Red Sox season this year and their future going forward. So I wanted to look uh, forward to what the Red Sox are going to face this upcoming week. As we record this on a Monday, it's the Red Sox one day off this week um, before they start two away series, um, the first one against the Chicago White Sox and the second one against the Yankees. Um 
I couldn't have lucked out more with having you on the show today uh, to talk about the Chicago White Sox because I want to point out to everybody out there um, just how smart Ben was for seeing this Chicago White Sox team coming from uh, really left field where nobody expected them to. But Ben was one of the supporters of the team. You want to tell us about that early in the season, Ben? Uh, oh, because I picked them to finish first in the Central? Yeah, that... I mean, that was a that was a gutsy call. I don't think many people at all at BP had that, and you were one of the few. Yeah, I really – well, there's still plenty of time for them to blow it. Sure. Uh, I really was high on them last year. Uh, I was surprised that they were – they finished so poorly. And I think that their core is a little bit underrated. I mean, I think you start talking about Sale, Quintana, Abreu, Frazier – uh, you know, Adam Eaton is sort of on the periphery of that core. It's a pretty strong – David Robertson, it's a pretty strong nucleus, and I, I really liked their moves once again this offseason. So um, I don't know – even with their great start, it would not surprise me to see another team catch up with them. But it was sort of a perfect storm of me thinking the Indians were a little overrated and the White Sox were a little underrated. And uh, I think the Royals will be right there with them, and I, I picked the Royals to win the wild card as well. But uh, the White Sox are a fun team. You know, they're um, – they don't have quite the same young pitching that the Red Sox have, but they have younger, more – I'm sorry, they don't have quite the same young position players, but they're sort of the inverse in that they have uh, you know younger, exciting pitching. And uh, now that they do have a few marquee offensive players, they're, uh, they're definitely a team to, team to watch out for. Yeah, interestingly enough, it, it might be better that we are getting the White Sox at their house because so far in the early going – um, they're six and three at home, which is by no means bad, but they're 12 and five on the road this year. So take that for what it's worth. But the team is 18 and eight overall. And there are some really intriguing pitching matchups. Luckily for the Red Sox, um, we miss Chris Sale this upcoming time that we're going to see them. But when I was looking up and down at the matchups, um, I found the similarities in how these guys have pitched so far to be really funny. So the first matchup that we have is Jose Quintana uh, facing off against Stephen Wright. Right now, Quintana has an ERA of 1.47. Wright has one of 1.37. Would you have thought that that would have been possible, that these two guys would have had ERAs under two at this juncture? I mean, under two, no. Uh, Quintana's really good. I think Quintana has a strong case as the most underrated pitcher in baseball. Um Right, you could have probably added those together and multiplied them by two, and I still would have taken the over. Um, so that'll be great to watch. And, and uh, it's going to be tough because the Red Sox get – I don't want to preempt you too much, but they get Quintana and Carlos Rodon, and they have they have struggled against lefties this year in limited sample size. Yeah, that certainly has been a struggle, and that'll be interesting. Oh, and Danks is left-handed, although he doesn't count because he's so bad. Well, they've been famous for these really lefty, heavy uh, rotations that they've trotted out in the past. In fact, I believe that barring injuries this year, uh, they were expected to trot out an entirely lefty rotation, weren't they? I think so. I'm trying to remember their fifth starter. It's Sale, Quintana, Rondon, Danks, and... Ugh. Damn White Sox pitching staff. See, I picked them to win, and I don't even yeah. – I was playing for them. Well, at, at this point, it doesn't matter too much, but, you know – Matt. Oh, Matt Latos. The Matt Latos, yeah, that's that's what it was. Um, you know, so we so we miss Magic Man Latos and his junk baller somehow effective uh, early going, which 
I don't care. You know, I, I would be happy to face Matt Latos. I think the Red Sox would eat him alive and, you know, tear his heart out, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom style. Um, but it is, in terms of Quintana versus Wright here, you got to give the advantage to Quintana pitching at home against the Red Sox, right? That's that's their game yeah. to lose. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I I tend to agree with you. The next matchup, though, things get a little bit more muddied. As bad as Clay Buckholz has been this year, John Danks, who they're facing, has been worse. John Danks has a 7.25 ERA, hasn't been very effective in a number of years, and Clay Buckholz is coming in with a 6.57. So take that for what it's worth, but we could get a win out of Clay Buckholz here. Yeah, if you are a fan of of pitcher duels, I suggest starting Cinco de Mayo with a night early. I think that's going to be a a rough one to watch. Yeah, you know, it would be good if this one was on Cinco de Mayo so people would just be out of their minds drunk so they wouldn't I, uh, have to uh, watch this. I saw John Danks versus Joe Kelly with uh, with Matt Collins last year at Fenway. It was quite the experience. Oh, God bless you guys. That's that's something. That's something to sit through. At it least was, It was tough. Yeah, that's, that's like water torture right there. But, I mean, do we even give an edge there, or do we just say, God yeah, help I'll, whoever watches this? I'll give the edge to Buckholz, but, I mean, who knows? Just because he's the more high variance of the two. You know what? I'm going to go the opposite. I hate Buckholz so much. I don't want to see his face ever again. Um, I'm going to give the edge to John Danks at home. I think Danks puts a little stank on his pitches and... You know, pulls this thing out. I'm going completely non-scientific, just on hate right now. So, third matchup in the series is an interesting one. You alluded to it. The uber-talented young lefty with a slider that is something to die for if you're a pitcher fan. Um, Carlos Rodon versus Henry Owens. Uh, another interesting matchup. Rodon comes in with a 4.33 ERA. Uh, Owens has a 4.82. Uh, neither one spectacular. Rodon tends to switch between uh, being incredibly dominant and being very terrible. Uh, the control comes and goes with him. I actually thought higher about him than um, Noah Syndergaard when they were both coming up as prospects. So look at how that played out for me. There's still time. But... Um, you know, what do you think about this matchup? It is intriguing. Two good young lefties. Yeah, I think I think for Red Sox fans who aren't familiar with Rodon, the best way to describe him is souped up Eduardo Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, just everything Eduardo Rodriguez does, Rodon does like 10 to 15% better. And that's that's basically who that is. Um, I think obviously Rodon has the edge here, but uh, I like watching Owens pitch, even though sometimes it can get rough. Get rough. Uh, I like seeing his deception and i think he's a fun player to watch try to figure it out at the major league level so if you just go by the pitching matchups i i don't think the red Sox should win this series but uh this offense has shown a lot of fight all year long and it would not at all surprise me to see them take at least two out of three yeah i agree with you and when it gets to the bullpen i think that's where they could have a little bit of an advantage the I mean, by no means do the, the White Sox have a bad bullpen. David Robertson and Nate Jones have been very good, but I think some of their other pieces, Matt Albers, Zach Duke, uh, Dan Jennings, those are guys that you can get to at times. So um, the Red Sox will certainly try and exploit that as they get some of these better arbs out of the game. Um, let me ask you, though, I want to riff about Owens real quick before we move on to the Yankees series. Um, one of the things that I was talking to Brian Joyner about last week on the show was my lack of confidence in um, 
Owen's ability to actually make it work with his fastball. He struggles to command it, doesn't have elite velocity. Occasionally it does come in a little bit flat. Um, the changeup's a good pitch, but I just worry how the changeup is going to play considering his fastball is such a lacking offering. I don't know how that's going to be a winning combination for him at the major league level. Yeah, it's a valid concern. I will say his fastball is not usually as flat as that we've seen it this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually more in like the 89 to 92 range than the 88 to 90 range, uh, which does make a difference when you're talking about a fastball changeup guy. Those those one or two mile an hour can, can mean a lot. Uh, I think the two most important things he needs to do are uh, command the fastball, like you said, more so than velocity, command it. And also he really needs to work on refining that third pitch and he keeps sort of going back and forth between a curveball and something a little slurvier. I think if the curveball takes a step forward, he's going to be an effective, high-variance but effective number four starter. If he can't do that, I think he's someone who's going to need to go to a more forgiving division uh, before he sees a lot of success. For some reason, when I look at him, I think his frame screams that he should be throwing a slider. I get it. He's lanky. He's got sort of that herky-jerky delivery. It's not very over the top like you associate with a curveball. Uh, so I definitely see that, but I, I, my memory serves me. Att- previous attempts at a slider have not been terribly <laughs> successful. Yeah, I mean, as much as you try with some pitchers, they just don't feel comfortable with certain pitches, and other pitches they take to it immediately, like Noah Syndergaard this year with his slider. So right. um, it really just depends on the guy and maybe he hasn't found that and hopefully he will find it but until he does i think it's going to be a, a little bit of a an up and down um with with henry owens here in the early going yeah i, I still have faith but there's part of me that's worried that owens is going to bomb disappear and then win like 17 games for the athletics in 2019 or something he might just, he's a west coast guy anyhow he could surf you know he could be out there he could Pitch in low-pressure games and go hit the waves. So I don't think he'd hate it. Surf over all that sewage in Oakland. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I won't touch too much in-depth on these Yankees matchups. I'll go over them quickly. Um, But the reason why I won't is because we've just seen two of them. Um, Pineda versus Porcello. I think we've got to give the edge to Porcello there with how Pineda's been pitching and how Porcello's been pitching lately. Uh, Yeah, it's as strange as it is to say. I, I think that's right. Uh, Eovaldi versus Price. Uh, I have no faith in Eovaldi. Um, He's there, Joe Kelly, and neither do I. Yep. Uh, so huge advantage Price there, even though he did get blown up last time. Um, the last one is intriguing, though. Um, Luis Severino, young pitcher with really good velocity, uh, typically good command, has not put it together this year, but advanced stats say that he's been better than he's shown. Uh, he's going against Stephen Wright again. Um this one, to me, is a complete crapshoot. I am going to go ahead and call this one a draw. Um, I, I can't even call it right now. Who are you giving the advantage to in this pitching matchup? Uh, I clearly like Severino more long-term, but given the way Wright's pitching right now, I'll give it to Wright. Um, but nothing would surprise me. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, if, if, if Severino comes in and performs like he can, you're absolutely right. It should be... Um, advantage Yankees but you know maybe we do go with the hot hand here and in Stephen Wright so uh anything else you want to add on that Yankees matchup I mean we just finished a sweep of the Yankees which put us in first place and that's been pretty intriguing for the Red Sox but um 
you know, any other interesting things that you're looking for in that series? No, I mean, I I guess the most interesting thing is if we're if we've made any headway in hitting Batantes because uh, <laughs> he was totally untouchable last year, and we've got him a few times so far this year. So that'll be interesting. And uh, no, overall, I mean, we just touched on it. It's a it's a tough six games coming up. So I, personally, I'd be happy with three and three. I'd be pretty ecstatic with four and two, mm-hmm. uh, two and four. I think the world keeps spinning. What about you? Yeah, I'd be happy with three and three here, especially how those pitching matchups shake out uh, in that trip to Chicago. So um, I'd be intrigued with that. Pretty happy. Uh, last week when um, I was talking to Joiner, we thought that four and six on that trip would be um, acceptable. Five and six, five out of six would be ideal, and that's what they did. So um, kudos to the Red Sox for actually fulfilling that. Um, but yeah, this is, this is going to be a tough little stretch on the road. And I think it'll be a true test as to how some of these guys can perform in adverse conditions. But, um, before we actually sign off here, um, did you want to have a hot take on that Christian Vasquez home run off of Dylan Batances? That thing went about two country miles. Well, I think that, uh, baseball is partially a mental game. And I think sometimes when someone rocks you that, that hard, it can all fall apart. Uh, so I am predicting that Dallin Batances will be out of baseball by August because <laughs> of the emotional damage. Because Christian Vasquez, 2007 playoff, Albert Pujols, Brad Lidged, Dallin Batances out of baseball. Wow. What a throwback comparison. Something that anybody who was watching the game back then certainly remembers. It's 2005, yeah. I think, but gotta got a safe face, show my age. Yeah, that's that is a solid comparison right there. So, well, Ben, I think that about does it for the show. Um, for all of you guys out there who are listening, you can find us now uh, at Blog Talk Radio. Uh, search for the red seat there will come up. Uh, we're also now on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, you can listen to us there. You can subscribe to us on those two services. And more importantly, you can also review us. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Um, and uh, if you have any questions in the meantime, uh, you can tweet me at, at @devjake, or you can get to Ben at... Uh, you can find me at Ben Carsley on Twitter, or you can get in touch with the entire BPro Boston staff by uh, going to at BPro Boston on Twitter. All right, perfect, and uh, we hope you'll be with us next week. And until then, uh, signing off for Ben Carsley, this is Jake Devereaux saying goodbye.